Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Broadway Curtain, and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, and follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. From the Bronx to Broadway, for over 60 years, today's guest has been one of the most prolific producers and general managers in the American theater, not only shepherding new playwrights to commercial success, but by ensuring that his name was synonymous with a theater of a certain caliber and quality. He once said the theater is a place where humanity learns its morality, and his body of work underlines that idea. A few of his over 70 producing credits include every Neil Simon play from The Sunshine Boys to 45 Seconds from Broadway. That's including The Brighton Beach Trilogy, Chapter 2, Lost in Yonkers, and so many more. Also, The Real Thing, Sunday in the Park with George, The Lion in Winter, Mark Twain Tonight, Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death, Ain't Misbehaving, Whose Life Is It Anyway, Children of a Lesser God, Master Harold and the Boys, Jerome Robbins Broadway, and he has served as a general manager on Rent and Hamilton. His IBDB page, folks, looks like one of those long CVS receipts. It just seems to keep going and going and going. So to tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Neil Simon, Stephen Sondheim, Tom Stoppard, Hal Holbrook, Jules Pfeiffer, Othel Fugard, Whoopi Goldberg, Jerome Robbins, and so many more, here is one of Broadway's most prolific producers, Manny Eisenberg. Manny, how are you today? This is the oldest I've ever been. <laughs> was you look it good. You yeah. look good. Is it your birthday today, Manny? Is it... <laughs> No, no. I'm being facetious. He's a facetious man. He's a facetious man. We are so honored to have you. And I know Kevin has the first question for you, so I'm going to throw it over to him. Yeah, I'm going to start right off because you're the first person we've talked to, Manny, that uh, had real inspiration, a connection, a familial connection to the Yiddish theater. Uh, you know, this it was a thriving uh, world on Second Avenue and near the Bowery that was was huge in the early 1900s. I feel like we don't talk about it enough. We don't talk about the, how it influenced Broadway and how the people from the Yiddish theater wanted to do the Broadway theater. Uh, and you uh, grew up going to it. You had an uncle who was a part of it. Can you just talk to us a little bit about how that was so important uh, in, in your life growing up? If you grew up in the Bronx in the, let's just say the 40s, it was, it was in the 30s as well, right. but I was somewhat unconscious at age seven. Sure. But <laughs> the theater was not, um, you didn't go to the theater. You didn't go to the ballet. You didn't go to the opera. You, it was, the, the Bronx was a working class, lower middle class immigrant world. And, but we were fortunate, my, it was my sister and I, because we had an uncle who was an actor and he was an actor in the Yiddish theater. So we went, not that we understood everything or anything, but the theater became an event. Yeah. And the, it was, my uncle struggled to make a living and my father helped them. And, and I actually never thought of theater as a vocation because my uncle struggled to make a living. And this is your uncle, just to say his name, Wolf. Uh, his name is Wolf Barzell. And only yesterday, I've been reading a book which included something by Franz Werfel, who wrote plays. And one of the plays he wrote was, one, was uh, one of the books he wrote was Embezzled Heaven, which appeared on Broadway in 1944 with Ethel Barrymore, directed by Sandy Meisner. Oh. And my uncle had a major role. So the idea of working of a job being in the theater rather than actual work. And I'm being facetious, but I'm not really. Work is, uh, work, I, I learned about work. I would, I spent time in the military and right. you dig a hole in the ground and you have to keep digging until it's six feet. That's work. Getting up at five o'clock in the morning is work, but going to the office is less work. And the idea of, of quote, working in the theater took the onus of the idea of work. So when I came out of the service, uh, I thought I would try working in the theater. I had no ambition or intention. The idea of you had to have a job and working in the theater would be much more interesting. And I didn't plan any of it. One sure. thing sort of led to another. And Manny, what did your father do for a living? My father ran a summer camp and he sold insurance. And my father had a, a was a distinguished man. He had worked for the first president of Israel, Chaim Weizmann, in London. 
Oh. And and associated with artists in who who were from Poland and Russia but lived in in England. My great grandfather was a distinguished rabbi, and he summoned my father back from London because a nine year old child prodigy chess Samuel Reshevsky, and if you look it up, he is famous was nine years old and was invited to the United States. And the parents came to the grand rabbi and said, we don't speak English and who will keep our son kosher oil? And so the rabbi summoned his grandson, my father, to take Reshevsky to the United States. And my father subsequently, he went back to London, but he um, became friendly with Chaplin, actually. Oh. And he decided to to become an American. And... There are lots of anecdotes about all of that. but uh, yeah. And so he came to America, he worked for the Zionist organization, he ran a summer camp, he sold insurance, and he made a living, which was uh, through the Depression and the Second World War. And, uh, yeah. and he, had, he, he was literary, not theatrical, but the requirement was to read Dickens and Thackeray. And, and so you did too, then he would pass that on to you. Well, I have all the books and I faked reading most of them. But I <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a son to me. Yeah. And when you decided to come back from, from your service and, and get into the theater, was there any resistance from your family of, you know, you really can't make a living doing this or we want something, quote unquote, you know, more noble for you to be doing? It's, it's a, a question I've asked. I don't remember it. I don't remember. I was a, an infantry officer in a real unit. And and when I came home, I was more of an adult. Hmm. I had been a platoon leader of 44 men, and you didn't get... I tell students that I that when I was younger, my mother would ask two questions. She would wake you up at 3 o'clock in the morning if you were 16 years old. She'd say, when are you getting married, and what are you going to do when you, when you <laughs> become an adult? But if you went into the service, they stopped asking that question because... Got to live. Yeah, you're yeah. to survive. Yeah. So yeah. when I came home, I was I was older, and uh, and I think I was a little bit more adventurous. Actually, I wasn't going to be an actor, but I wanted to work in the theater. And um, interestingly enough, I just read a book about uh, Moss Hart called The Dazzler, and the guy that helped Moss Hart was Sam Harris's general manager. His name was Max Siegel, and he actually Max Siegel. Got me my first job also. Okay, I that's would, incredible. You want to you're check? Gonna, you're, you're just going to slide that in there. History and who Sam Harris was and who Max Siegel was. We, you know, we know. <laughs> my goodness, you're just going to slide that in there. Like, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about that and him? So, and it was with an agent. I made fifty dollars a week gross, which netted to forty-one. I made more money in the service than I did as a civilian. And but he was going to produce a play. The name of the agency was Briscoe and Goldsmith, and they hired a guy named Hartney Arthur, named Brisk. So it was Briscoe, Goldsmith, and Arthur. Mm-hmm. In the old days, they handled people like the Lunts, but they were fading. They were old agents, and they actually, a year later, put on a play, famous play, and ran two nights called The Legend of Lizzie. Yes. And then I got $60 a week as the assistant company manager, but only for a very short period of time. Right. <laughs> it closed on the weekend. But the one thing that was that I discovered is that I can do this. I can I can be the company manager. I have to learn it. But I, I if you're diligent, and I think I was, I think I was not obsessive, but I think I was willing to put in time. And for our listeners who might not know, back then, what exactly was a company manager doing for these productions? You had something to do with, with all the paying the bills and all the financing. And uh, you were you certainly were not connected to the aesthetic of the theater. Although almost everybody I knew from that moment on who were company managers or general managers were closet aesthetes. Everybody went into the theater because you didn't sing, you didn't dance, you couldn't direct, you didn't write. But you had what I call a sensibility. Mm-hmm. And maybe that would include a little bit of taste. This is good. This is not. Certainly comes in handy as a producer. Yeah, I, I would, I would back, back to humility. <laughs> yes, I think that, I don't think producers are creative, but I think there's an aesthetic sensibility that's required. You don't produce moose murders. Yeah. You, right. Or you go with the artists. There are any number of people who produce plays who uh, would say go with the jockey and not with the horse 
<laughs> so if Mike Nichols is doing a show, you do it. Do you happen to remember when you were first producing how much, I mean, sorry, when you were first doing the company management, how much it would cost to get a show on? And the line of when this capitalization, I think, was either one hundred twenty-five or one hundred fifty thousand dollars. If you go back to the twenties, yeah, you need about twenty thousand dollars. And they, in the sixties, the most expensive musical ever done was Hello Dolly for four hundred fifty thousand dollars. There was what? a better balance between the aesthetics and the money than why, there is now. Why did that change? <clears throat> why did it become imbalanced? Uh, mostly greed. And we have, we're losing our aesthetic. We're much, the Broadway is much more of a theme park rather than a cultural center. Mm-hmm. And some of the theme park is good. I mean, Lion King is good. But Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and King Kong and Jukebox musicals are less good. And many of those shows belong in theme parks. And, and keeping that strong standard of aesthetics, is that the job of the producer? Is that the job of the audience? Or whose job is it? to sort of guide things in, in a higher caliber. You, you can lay the responsibility on everybody. You can lay it on the community or you can lay it on the audience of what the audience requires. Uh, some things are inevitable. Uh, you know, the music hall is gone and vaudeville is gone. And if you go back to the, to the let's say, the 20s, there were 270 openings a year. Jeez. 90 theaters, 9-0. And they, and they didn't perform in the summer because there was no air conditioning. So, right. so you, you know, you could have three shows opening on the same day. But think of what that was like. Talkies, movies have just begun. Mm-hmm. Radio was there, but there's no television. There's no computer. There's no film competition. So the focus of performance, acting performance, is on the theater. That's changed. The music has changed. What was operetta was Rodgers and Hammerstein. What Roger and Hammerstein is now rock. What rock is now rap. So there are these evolutions. And and the theater, in many respects, has been substituted for by, by a screen of yeah. some sort. Mm-hmm. And it won't go away, but it's a loss. And with so many young writers that are, are brilliant going off to California to do television or, or the UK to do movies and television, how do we as a theatrical community and how do you as a producer try to foster new voices so the theater isn't at a deficit with, the, with these new ideas? There's an answer to it, but it requires real change, not lip service. So, for example... Um, we live in a capitalist society, so it's money has got to be included. The actor has to get paid. The writer has to get, everybody has to get paid. So we have to create something other than what exists. The not-for-profit theater doesn't really work because it's not good enough. And the profit theater is evolving into too expensive and less aesthetic. So perhaps if um, something in between was created in New York in five different cities that... Um, had a little bit more repertory that the actors that that became the queen of the arts right. that it was an honor to be in it was like the national is in london yes and that's diminishing government subsidized Except london doesn't pay right oh but if we had a commercial theater that the actors didn't get paid $600 minimum but $3000 minimum and spent a year and had a piece of the action in some way and committed and somebody like Mike Nichols could have, or Meryl Streep, or somebody of real quality on the aesthetic side, said, this is what we need, and it becomes the place to go. So Something new has to happen that, that isn't a repeat of the old system. Yeah, and, you, and, your, and your idea is just to have like five of these different theaters spread out across the United States, so everyone has... I would has... settle for one okay. to begin with. Yeah. One, it nurtures the talent, and it's a place maybe for new playwrights, but it's also a place for actors. The actors aren't going to get a lot of work. They're going to be doing television and, and cable. And acting in film and on television is different than on the stage. I think we're getting fewer and fewer of those performances. You mean great stage actors? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. If 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 you go back a few years and you want to list the people who were on the stage, you'd have to go back 30 or 40 years. But I'm, I'm even past Olivier and Richardson and Gielgud. But go back to the Jason Robots period when he did a play every year. And the theater was class. You know, if you look at the opening lines of Chorus Line, he says, any Broadway shows? Because that was the standard. And and the people that were on the stage 
or, you know, in, in England, Albert Finney, that Peter O'Toole, all of those people are stage actors. And you can't resist the money in the film or even the art in some in many films. You know, David Lean calls you to do a movie. You do a movie. Were you ever tempted to, to dabble in the film and television and spend more time there for, for the I, I dabbled. The I did a few films. Right. And I, that was, it was boring for me. <laughs> Fair. We did right. Sunday in the Park. We made as a yeah. film, our Master Harold, a couple of Neil Simons, mm-hmm. and we did Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Mm-hmm. But the job of producing a, a film is about money solely. So it, uh, yeah, I, I mean, see. you know, you like it when they give you a check, but what you my experience is where I was bored. <laughs> You're bored. Yeah, fair. Good. I was bored. Good. So let's jump back if we can. So it's the ni- it's the 1950s. It's the early 1960s. You're doing your company management. You're doing your general management. W- where do you decide you want to start producing? Uh, I, f- I worked for David Merrick. I did a lot of shows what? at the Merrick office. I lived on 92nd Street, and the general manager of Merrick was Jack Schlissel, and he lived on 92nd Street in Central Park West, except he took the bus. God. And we would bump into each other on Are the you bus. Kidding me? He also he made a lot of money, but he still took the bus. Good. Yeah. In any right. case, and remember, I, I was an adult. I was not a I wasn't right. a kid. After the army, this yeah. Right. And I, I there was an opening and I didn't get it, but I was on the list. And then the next opening came up. And I, you know, there were a lot of old guys working there. So I did the work of, of three people mm. and willingly. It was not, I, it, it was fine. And, and I must have done somewhere between 17 and 20 shows, Broadway shows, one after another with some distinguished people. You know, I did a play with Tennessee Williams, Milk Train, and with Tallulah Bankhead. And, and Tony Richardson was the big time director. And, and when he would do shows, he said, I want him on the show. What lessons did you learn from David Merrick that you still take with you in producing today? Merrick was nuts, but he had taste. And he was he was crazy. I mean, there's a, a madness there. Like, what do you mean by that? Like, because people have comments about him, but like, what do you like? What does that mean? One, he was cruel. He was cruel, and it was about him. But he had, he was smart enough to know it was about him. It that 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 the show wasn't about him. So if you if you remove Tony Richardson and and Gawa Champion from Merrick's bio, you'd have no no. He would be forgotten. Mm. So, and remember, in those days, there was a 90% tax bracket, and Merrick made a lot of money. So instead of giving the money to the government, he created a foundation. He'd do any play, it cost him a dime out of a dollar. So there were a lot of failures, but anything Garson Kanan wanted or Tony Richardson wanted. So when Tennessee Williams said, let's do a revival of Milk Train with Tallulah Bankhead, sure, what the hell? Because it didn't cost him a lot. And he also knocked out a lot of competition that way. Merrick went to London and bought London. Yeah. We did, for example, Luther with Albert Finney, the rehearsal, the Anui play, the rehearsal with half a dozen British stars, Arturo Ui. So you say, what did you learn? You learned who was a good director. You learned who were good actors. You learned you couldn't be fooled economically anymore with, you pardon the expression, any theatrical bullshit. So... I had, there was a kind of an epiphany at age 35, which is, uh, I can't be fooled anymore. Mm. I knew who was real and who was artificial. Because you could see the results, right? You could, you could see the results coming. Yes. And you also could see those who were, who were performance, who were, um, I, I want to swear here. You so can't, you can. You knew who was full of shit. Who? Exactly. Yeah. And you also worked for Alexander Cohen. Is that right? For yeah, a brief time. Yeah. Any anything there that you still take with you today, or or maybe what not to do? No, it did. Alex Alex Cohen wanted to be David Merrick, but David Merrick didn't let him. Because <laughs> <laughs> Merrick, they all went to England to get stuff, and right, uh, Alex he came up with with something like uh, Beyond the Fringe, mm-hmm. which was a success, but a lot of failures. And you said for you, producing Line in Winter was was an accident. You just sort of stumbled into that that position. For anyone who's interested in your students, you wind up being associated with your own with your peer group. Mm-hmm. So when when I left the Merrick office, I left with another guy named Gene Waltz, who was a good guy. And Gene wanted to produce, and I would be the general manager. I did not have an ambition to be a 
be a producer. I thought it was kind of fun working in the theater. I liked, yeah. I liked the life, you know, and it, and it included the box office and the stations and the actors and restaurants to have dinner with. It was a pseudo-Bohemian existence yeah. and you got paid a little bit. And yeah. so it was good. So Gene was going to produce The Lion in Winter, which was written by Jimmy Goldman, Bill Goldman's brother. Mm-hmm. And we all became friends. Jimmy Goldman, Bill Goldman, Redford, you know, and a few others that Frank Gilroy, playwright, all peer group. And Gene had a hard time raising the money for the line and went even though we had Rosemary Harris and Robert Preston. And I said, I'll help you. And I and I did a fair share of it. So I wound up getting billing. How'd you know how to collect the money? How'd you know who to call? How'd you know where to, you know, find those contacts? Well, you met a, doing 17, 20 shows for Merrick. You met a lot of people who put up money. Yeah. But wouldn't he and, be territorial about those, those, that money a little bit? You would think that he would not want them to go to other people, you know? You, you couldn't help it. Mm-hmm. If you did that many shows, they were always around. Yeah, the, right. the, the rich three or four people. Also, <clears throat> if you do that many shows, you begin to have credibility both for your opinion and, and also your character, that you don't cheat, God forbid, you know. But if the capitalization was $150,000, so if you raised 30 or 40, you were a partner. And Gene said, thanks, and you get billing. But And Jimmy Goldman remained a friend until he died. And Billy Goldman, who wrote Butch Cassidy, Redford was in Butch Cassidy. He met Bill Goldman in my apartment. Oh, wow. Because Redford was not supposed to do Butch Cassidy. Steve McQueen was supposed to do it. Oh, I didn't know that. Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen was supposed to play the Sundance Kid, but somehow the deal couldn't be made, and Redford does Butch Cassidy, and that began a career. Yeah. When when you were producing and you were looking for people to to back these shows, did you go? Did you have like specific groups that you go? Okay, I know that you know Joe will like Lion in Winter, but he's probably not going to like the Sunshine Boys. Did you did you start to put people in groups? No, the the, the first couple of shows ain't supposed to die a natural death. Is a different set of people. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the investigation, which was about Auschwitz. With 125 people put up $1,000 each, including Robert Kennedy, out of commitment. That was the way we structured it. Not a lot of money, but commit to this play about about what happened at Auschwitz, which was right from the transcript of the trial. Mm. Peter Weiss wrote, Marat Saad wrote that. And uh, it it actually paid back because it was done on television twice. Mm. So whoever put up $1,000, made $170 profit. So each play was <clears throat> had a different constituency. But when we, then along came Neil, Neil Simon. <clears throat> and Neil put up all of the, for the first number of plays, he put up all the money himself. For, for his first group you know, of plays? My life was made a lot easier when he owned the theater. He yeah. was the royalties. Right. And he was the capitalization. So you are like, I used to say, we structured everything by looking in the mirror, say, what do you want? What do you want? I'm talking to me. Makes it easier. So there was, you, you could decide to do a play without <clears throat> the hassle that other people, you had the theater, you had the money and you had the show. That's nice. That's a nice place to be out of all, out of all the shows that you've done, which one did you find was the hardest to raise money for the hardest to get people to, to invest in? I didn't have a, that problem, Robert. Good, good. That's because I was producing Neil's shows, and after the first three or four, beginning with Brighton Beach, he did, Neil didn't put up all the money. He would put up half the money. So other people would invest, and they Neil's shows made money yeah, for everybody. So if I wanted to do other shows, they put up the money also. And we had, a, I think if you include Neil's shows, two out of three out of every show I did was successful. And without Neil's, at least one, one out of two. What, what a track record. <clears throat> and some... Somewhere inordinately, shows that you wouldn't expect, like Chapter 2, mm-hmm. Ain't Misbehaving. Right. And most of the people that we knew put money and understood the game. It was not novices. And if they got their money back and had a good time, they were supporting the arts. And you you guys know what the list. Some of those are artsy-craftsy, difficult shows. <clears throat> and some of them worked. When did you first meet Neil Simon? How did you first meet him? Redford and I were friends. Because we did a play called Sunday in New York. Redford got $300 a week. I got $200 a week. Ran at the Golden Theater in, 
and we played on a baseball team together. I was the shortstop and Redford was the first baseman. So Redford came back into New York in the 60s with Barefoot in the Park. And you look at the cast, it's Mildred Natwick and uh, Herb Edelman, and that's it. And Mildred Natwick could not play shortstop. So Redford called up and said, you have to play on this team. So I said, sure. So Redford played first base, I played shortstop, and Neil Simon played second base. Neil Simon's recollection is he played center field, but he didn't. He played second base. (laughs) And my wife and I would then be invited to Neil Simon openings, which were events in those days. There were the, the critics came on that night. They wrote the review that night. People wore tuxedos. Going to the opening was classy. And um, and I went about my business. And uh, somewhere in uh, years later, Neil called up and said, would you come over to uh, his townhouse? It was a Memorial Day in like 1969 or 70 or something like that. And he threw a script at me and said, how would you like to produce my plays? And I was funny in those days. And I said, I don't know. Let me think about it. And he didn't smile. The next day, uh, he just found out that his wife, Joan, who was really a delight, was going to die. She had metastasized breast cancer. And they were unhappy with the previous producers, or at least she was unhappy as well. And that play was The Sunshine Boys. Needless to say, I I walked back to my apartment. I don't think I touched the ground. It's like... uh, who would believe something like that from being able to pick up a ground ball in a, in a softball game? And the rest was became history. I think we must have done, you know, 20, 20 some odd shows. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I don't think that will ever be replicated. Also, it wasn't all pussycat time. It was, there was a lot of, I once chased them around the city looking to kill them. What? And, and we broke up once. And, uh, and then he called up and said, let's put it back together again. It was, uh, it's like a family war, you know. Sure. And you have to be able to say no, too. Outside of your your working relationship, it seems like you two developed a very, like you said, it's like a family. Um, how did you How did you navigate giving him notes? How did you navigate feedback? How did all that work? I'm not a believer in notes as such. Mm-hmm. I think it's presumptuous. I'll just do, do it anecdotally. <clears throat> it's when I did a play called The Real Thing with Stoppard. Now, you don't give Stoppard notes. I mean, think about that. You want to you commit suicide. It's also presumptuous would be a minor word. You don't know where this information comes from. If you have respect for the art, then you know it, it comes out of some whatever it is. But you're not privy to it. So The Real Thing, we were in Boston. And I was hiding. I didn't want to be asked anything. And sitting in the dark in some dress rehearsal, and there's a tap on the shoulder. And this is true. This is anecdotal, but it's true. And Stoppard said, what do you think? And I blurted out 10 minutes into the second act. I wasn't paying attention. I was looking at the scenery. And he nodded his head. And five days later, came over and said, is it better? Well, that's your job. Not to tell him what to write, but tell him whether you're engaged you optioned this play, you optioned this playwright, you optioned the entire effort. Don't tell him that I think the sister should say this, not the brother. Your job is to viscerally respond to who you are as an audience. Uh, we had a reading of a Neil Simon play called Broadway Bound about four weeks before we went into rehearsal. And then we had dinner and Neil said, what do you think? And I said, I missed the mother in the second act. That's not telling him what's right or wrong. And he nodded his head. He said, give me a couple of weeks. And three days later, he wrote that big scene where the son dances with the mother. Well, nobody could suggest that. It comes out of only him. And most of these playwrights are intuitive. They write. They don't lay it out. Even Stompart is an intuitive playwright. So you don't intrude on whatever that lunatic process is but you do have a visceral, sensible response. And if I'm engaged, I'm, that's fine. Make me laugh, make me cry, engage me. Beyond that, it's your painting and it's your composition, it's mm. your play. Have you and, seen the aesthetic change at all over the years? Have you seen that, like what you thought, you know, the notes you would have, or the ideas you would have said, this isn't working here. Have you seen that change as you've produced over the years? You know, things that you thought weren't going to work then? I think if you look at, you know, you read off a number of plays, there are about 70 of them. 
It may be the most anybody has ever done on Broadway. Well, how do I survive? Not by being an idiot and not by pretending that I'm the creator. The Neil wrote a play once called God's Favorite, which I rejected. I said, no, let's not do it. And he put it back in the drawer. But this was the first play he wrote after his wife died. And it kept coming out of the drawer and it kept going back in. And finally, I said, okay, let's do it. And then he said, why? So I said, we'll exercise it because it's eating you up. Let's just do it. There's a line in that play about hemorrhoid. Now, you know, by this time with this playwright, product jokes and we'll, we'll go. He'll do it himself. So you don't waste your conversation time on minutia. But hemorrhoids stayed for two weeks. And I finally went up to him. I said, Neil, hemorrhoids? And he said, don't you think I know? I don't have anything better. So every time you make a suggestion that says this is no good, well, what goes in its place? That you don't know about. Cut this. Okay. Some things can be just cut and you can continue on. So each playwright is different. With Fugard, I wrote a play called The Road to Mecca, and I said I would do it. I said, but only on one condition, what? He said, if you don't direct it. And he said, no, I want to direct it. And I said, yeah, but there's, I know what this play is about, Athol. I know, I really understand this play. And every character is you, and there's no resolution. And maybe if we got another director, they'd force you to conclude. He said, fuck you, I'm going to do direct it anyway. But we joked about it for the next 20 years. <laughs> But you you have to you feel in some way you have to protect the playwright right you have to you have to protect their story you're giving them a space but then you also have to guard the space for them to create in right you don't confuse your job <laughs> your job is not to write the play yeah. you can participate you participate certainly in the choice of what you're going to produce you participate in the casting you participate in the hiring or at least the approval of designers and and you should be satisfied with that. This is Shirley Booth. Oh, I used to be a Broadway baby. <laughs> now I'm more of a middle age. But whatever age you are, we can help keep Broadway behind the curtain on the air. Just head over to patreon.com. Oh, sure, get a pencil. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. You got that? Oh, just search behind the curtain. Broadway's living legends. Set a monthly donation. Oh, even a dollar helps. Oh, sure. Mr. B gives. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. So let me, let me, let's, let's imagine. So you're, you know, you're in the middle of producing something. You're watching something. It's not sitting right with you for whatever reason. Do you nip it in the bud early in the rehearsal process or do you say, okay, you know what, let me see how this plays in front of an audience. Then if it's still bothering me, I'll give a note. The audience has a lot to do with it. When they don't laugh and they cough, there's a signal. But okay, we can do this anecdotally also. We're doing um, Lost in Yonkers, Mercedes Rule, right? And the part is uh, a woman who may be impaired. Mercedes Rule, at the very first week of rehearsal, said, this is unrealistic. This woman cannot be impaired in the beginning of the play and come to this conclusion at the end of the play. Well, in maybe in real life, that's true. And I said, uh, I'm not the one that's going to go to the playwright and tell him this. <laughs> because if you would like to be decapitated now, we right. can. <laughs> I said, I would wait and see whether this plays out which was only a stalling tactic. The play opened three weeks later. The audience went nuts. And Mercedes's point was gone. <laughs> the audience buys it completely. And it is a logical conclusion. And she played it and won the Tony, right? As did mm -hmm. Kevin Spacey won the Tony. And did Irene Worth won the Tony. So things in performance with good performers, 
we're so quick. And listen, you guys have experienced it also. You read a play and you don't get it. And you see it and it, all of a sudden, oh, my God. Yep. You need yeah. it to perform. Yeah. yeah. You need it on. And, and that's with the conventional stuff. Then there's the generational gap. Right. All sorts of and different tastes and the subjectivity of of uh, of audiences. I mean, I I I don't get Rent. Kevin and Jeffrey produce Rent, and I love them. Yeah. They said, "Would you come down and see this?" And I brought my oldest daughter, and I said, "The only thing that interests me is when he takes the guitar out and he plays something from La, from uh, Bohem." <laughs> do, 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 do. Yeah. That, that was good. The rest of it is just a shitload of noise. Pacini. And my daughter said, Dad, this is good. Needless to say. Yeah. It became an enormous hit. I all, And I also gave them some money, too. Yeah, well, good thing you did. Do you like readings and workshops? And, and do you think a show can be workshopped too much or read too much? Uh, what What are your feelings on that? Especially nowadays. Yeah. You can get you can get fooled. I got fooled on um, in the Jeffrey and... Kevin produced the last ship, which at the workshop looked like the greatest thing that ever happened, and it didn't work. And you can seduce yourself. I went to see a workshop of a show called Sideshow. I looked at the program. I said, what the hell am I doing here about Siamese twins? Mm -hmm. And I listened to the score, and I said, oh, I love this. Cost me a lot of money. But if you would have asked me one of my favorite shows, it would be Sideshow. Same. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, to jump back before we lost the thread, which was, you know, you had mentioned earlier that, you know, you and, and Neil Simon had this uh, fight around the city. But what what was it about? I think it was it about the closing notice for Little Me. Yeah. Can, can you tell us a little bit about what happened? And how shows, I mean, the, little Me has, is one of those shows that has a, a, that kind of theatrical reputation. But the truth is, it doesn't work. And it seduces you when you listen to Pardon me, miss, have I ever been concerned? And it's funny and everything else, but right. it has no soul. So we did it again, and it wasn't very good. And we, whatever innovations we had were no good. And I posted, I said, I'm, we're closing. And Neil didn't say anything, but he went down and he took the closing notice down, which cost us another week of expenses. And I was furious. And I chased him all over the city. I mean, it was like one of those movies. I'm in a, right, in a car. Right, right. And I'm saying, where is he? Where'd he go? And then we didn't talk for a while. And we broke up. And, uh, and there were a lot of funny incidents in between. Funny now, not funny then. Yeah. And then uh, Bill Evans, the press agent, called up. And he said, well, you got an interesting problem. He wants back. And we never spoke about it. Hmm. Just the two Bronx Never, boys. Not a just, word. They just, it's like, yeah, it was like a family argument and it buried. It's like okay. family. That's right. It's like, it family. like family. Remember, we came from similar neighborhoods. I knew right. I knew his who he was and where he came from. And I don't know if it's a unique situation, but it was. You don't have too many of those that last as long as they did. Not in this business. You know, out of all the works that you, the, the two of you put out into, into the universe, if there was one that you would say, yeah, that's the one I want to be remembered for with him and that collaboration, what would it be? Maybe not necessarily the trilogy. The, the trilogy. How come? Because I think <clears throat> that Brighton Beach and Broadway Bound are as good as Odette's Awakened Sing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Same fundamental period, the same struggle. Neil gets dismissed by the literary critics and by the literary world, but nobody's replicated it. Nobody's replaced them. And give Lucy and, and Desi and Neil credit for the creation of a comedy, situation comedy, for this country. And maybe, to a certain extent, internationally. Uh, Prisoner of Second Avenue was done in Paris all, every 20 minutes. <laughs> and not in England, but in certain countries they play. And for 30 years, he had a Broadway audience. And it wasn't only Broadway, it was around the country. Those, every one of those successful Neil Simon plays toured America. Oh yeah, people were clamoring to go see him. And, and he was a craftsman. He, he was very purposeful. When we did Yonkers, he said, watch, I'm gonna make the audience laugh and then cry within 30 seconds. And we used to watch it when at the end of that play, when Bella says, 
after she makes you laugh with her, her whatever her problems were. Then she turns to the mother and says, you don't think I can have babies? I will love them. Well, we would stand at the right, at the side of the audience and you see them laugh. And then you get to that moment only a minute or so later and people with glasses had tears. Now, if you have glasses on and you have tears, you can't wipe them away without doing this, Robert. And you stand at the side, you'd watch this motion by a half a dozen people. And he'd wink and say, see, I made them cry. <laughs> what what a great body of work that's left behind. And you're right, he does not get the credits, but he should be up there with Odette's no. and O'Neill. Broadway Bound is a heartbreak play. Mm-hmm. And and if you if you read it with in light of of uh, Awake and Sing, it works. Mm-hmm. It's um, mm-hmm. Linda Lavin. Linda Lavin broke everybody's heart playing. That's when I retired. We did in that year. We were going to do both Brighton Beach and then into Broadway Bound, and we also did Ragtime. Right. And I frankly thought they were good, but they failed. And there was a conclusion that it was my time was up, and uh, the generational issues of are real. And I have five kids, so they could remind me of what works for young people and uh, what doesn't. And so it was time to go away. This is is a retirement that you you have created for yourself. So what what do you do to keep yourself artistically satisfied? Or are you enjoying being able to, to breathe without these worries that you've had for so many years? That's a real philosophic question of what, what do you do with, at, at the end of your life? The fact that I have the five kids and they are uh, they're good guys, they're functioning oh. people. Oh. That's part of it. That's the sweetest uh, thing ever. <laughs> let's let, assume there's no pandemic. If you're talking to, if you guys talk to students, and this is what I would, I said, you know, I, I taught at Duke for, yep. for 25 years yeah. that it can't be one thing. You have to be more diverse. So the teaching at Duke was was much more enjoyable for me than almost anything else. Mm-hmm. I had something to say to them, and the, the theater was the, was the catalyst. I also, we made these trips to Israel every year with, and not political, but not political, because I'm on the left anyway, so... And it was just to shatter preconceptions that the Arabs aren't what you look like Arafat and the Jews don't look like Orthodox Hasidim, mm. that they're a, this is a human issue. And, uh, and we did that every year for 30 years. So there are, there are other, other interests that don't concern money. Mm. You have to make a living. I get that. So that when you get to be my age, there's some satisfaction and I can st- I stay busy. I go down to the to the Hamilton office and pretend that I'm participating. And sometimes I actually do. Yes. Sometimes the the, the reality of your experience actually is a, has a good suggestion every once in a while. Jeffrey Seller and Kevin McCollum, you know who they are. Yeah. Oh, great guys. Well, we kind of gave them their first job on uh, Lost in Yonkers, and. Um, and so that's where that relationship began. And it's me and this other generation. So we helped out on the doing of rent. That was considerable. Hamilton, less considerable. But there are moments of uh, where I would make a suggestion and I, it would be meaningful. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Almost any suggestion you make on Hamilton works, so it doesn't matter. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Go, and going back to rent for a second... What were some of the suggestions you were making to take this downtown show and and make and put it into a mainstream commercial environment? Well, they're going to move it uptown. Mm-hmm. So Jeffrey and Kevin had never done a show uptown, so and we were friendly. They said, "Would you help?" And I was, you know, I was influential in those days. So I made the theater deal, which is somewhat legendary. And the theater deal, the essence of it was, I had a good relationship with the Needlanders, an old James Needlander. Yeah, And in my estimation, he had the right theater, even though it was in terrible shape, but it had the right capacity, one balcony, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so the other theater owners were competing, but I, the deal I made for Jimmy with myself on behalf of Kevin and Jeffrey was no rent until you recover your money. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Sr. said to me, is it fair? And I said, it's fair. And he said, then it will be done. And so how so rent played until 
until it recouped. And then he got, but also there were some other conditions that were unique. And Jimmy did very well. And the show did very well and everybody did very well. And the other was that was one of those deals where I told Jeffrey and Kevin that you cannot individually negotiate with these actors. They all have to get the same, no matter whether big ones, small ones. They're nobodies, but they're good. Yeah. And give them a piece of the action. And that'll be that'll justify it. Mm-hmm. And so they did, and those those original kids got checks for the next twenty years. That is great. And it was that, fair. Didn't know that. And I, I'm yeah, so that's... I'm so touched by this idea of you know just him looking at you and going is it is it fair Yeah it's 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 that trust it's that trust which is so rare today feels like it's rare today when we did Iceman you know the O'Neill play mm-hmm. of course and everybody the condition to do it it's a cast of twenty five and it's a four and a quarter hour which I actually a four and a half hour show seven performances makes no economic sense whatsoever but. Kevin was, Spacey was in good graces in those days. And uh, so I said, okay. And the conditions where everybody works for minimum, unless you came from outside of New York and you got a, a per diem to pay for your expenses. And everybody agreed. And the estate gave me the rights for next to nothing because nobody does Iceman really commercially. And we took one ad and it was sold out. And we didn't even pay for the ad. It was American Express. Who knew? After two weeks... We had to have a meeting, which was, what are we going to do with the profits? It's not a, it's not an exaggeration, because the assumption was that that show was going to lose money. Mm. We did it not for commercial reason. What do we do with the money? And Spacey said, how much money are we going to make? And we're at the meeting with people representing the estate, and it's truthful. <laughs> the, uh, so Kevin said, how much money are we going to make? And I said, are you going to extend for the three weeks you're pretending you're not extending for? <laughs> and he said, Yes. I said, okay, then my estimate is the show will make three, three and a half million dollars. What do we do with it? So the joke was, let's keep it and run away. You know, you go through that. And the decision, Solomon-like, was, Kevin, since you caused all of this, you're going to get 15% of the profit, which is came to $450,000. And he said, I don't want it. And he, I said, then give it away. Do whatever you want with it. The estate got... 10% of it, $300,000. The director got another $175,000. The actors all, all moved up to, for the last three or four weeks, get to get $3,500 a week plus 5% of the $5,000 check to each of them and 5% of the profit. And the investors who put up their money on the basis of losing are going to double their money. Now, that's a prototype for what the theater should be. The understudies made $3,500 a week. Wow. Three of them came up and said, me too, in disbelief. And I said, there's no negotiation, there's no agents, no nothing. So somewhere in that formula is the way the theater should function. There are very logical ways of where the, the, I think the theater should go. But you asked the question initially, and there's self-interest and greed, and, and there has to be some commitment to the art itself, to the totality of it. That, that this is an art and it has to be nurtured and and you have to create a place for it. And we don't, I don't think we have that place. How come you didn't get sucked into the greed of it all, Manny? I mean, you, you're, that is so fair of you. That is, you're, you're, you're known as the classiest guy in Broadway, but how come you didn't get sucked into that? that no, you have the, all the impulses that everybody else has. Everybody has them. more and more. Give me more. I'd like, but one of the great discoveries that I had was, if I'm always perceived as not the guy that's asking for more, it's not that I don't have a greedy impulse. No, sure. It's that I don't act on it. And frankly, it was always enough money. I mean, I, I, I always, I forever have thought, if you're from the Bronx and you're eating the food that I'm eating, holy <laughs> mackerel. And Neil never counted Neil Simon, the only time he responded to money is when he thought that people were abusing him. Mm-hmm. And Stop Art is another one who doesn't care about it. And Fugard is another one. It's not that they're stupid and that they're silly. No, they want what they're entitled to, but not at the expense of other people. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about this, the Stop Art play in London? Yeah. Pay attention to that one. Leopoldstadt. Yes, please. It's a masterwork. You've read it. You've you've already you've seen it, or you've read it. I've seen it. I went to London. Oh my gosh! And I read it. 
Of course. Is is that one that would tempt you out of retirement? I will. Great. Roy Furman and I will will be here. I'll come out for that. Good. Okay. But that's great. Good. I've been aware of I've been aware of no, that play is, is is you don't want to applaud it so good. Oh, that's exciting. I had no idea. That's that's really exciting. Manny, I this has been such a pleasure getting to talk to you. And I, I have to tell you, you know, on behalf of us and our listeners, but of all the wonderful experiences that you've given audiences over your over your entire time is just been uh, it's been so special to us. And thank you so much for creating those opportunities of theatrical magic. Well, it's a pleasure, actually. And uh, I was lucky, man. We no, man, you gave man, me. Time. I had a good trip. A, a great trip that's not over by any stretch of the imagination. I'm so excited that you're going to be returning to produce with Roy. Okay, guys, be well. Man, you thank you. Somehow. Take care. Thank you for this. Bye bye. So you bet. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right? Back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was batty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.